Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Folklore.org, written by Andy Hertzfeld. Black Wednesday, February 1981. I could tell there was something wrong from the moment I stepped into the building on the morning of Wednesday, February 25, 1981. Instead of the normal office buzz, there was a muted sadness hanging in the air. People were standing around, huddled in small groups. I ran into Don Denman, who had a cubicle near mine, and asked him what was going on. Didn't you hear? Scotty fired almost half the Apple II engineering team this morning. He started calling people into his office around nine, one at a time, and telling them they were being fired. I think over 30 people have been fired so far. No one knows why or who's going to be next. There's going to be a meeting out back around noon when he's supposed to tell us what's going on. Apple had just gone public a couple of months ago, and it was still growing at a frenzied pace. Sales were booming, and there was no financial reason to pare back. I wondered. Do you know who they fired? I asked Don. Yeah, it's amazing. Scotty fired three out of the four managers, so almost everyone's boss is gone. And believe it or not, they fired Rick Arricchio. I thought that the managers were more or less incompetent, so that didn't bother me, but the Rick Arricchio part was shocking. Rick was clearly one of the most talented programmers in the Apple II division and would usually do a week's worth of work in a day or two and then spend the rest of the week messing around with whatever caught his fancy, usually one of the latest games. I understood how he could be a management challenge, but it made no sense to fire him. He was the only other person besides me that was working on the Apple II DOS 4.0 project, which was just getting underway so it was especially distressing that they would fire him so abruptly. I joined the ranks of the shell-shocked and listened numbly to the outdoor meeting where Scotty explained his rationale. He said that the company had grown much too fast over the last year and had made a few key bad hires, who themselves had hired even worse people. He thought the Apple II division had become too complacent and that we had lost the startup company hustle that was the basis of our success. He wanted to shake us out of our complacency and prune the bad hires so we could start growing in the right direction once more. Scotty himself seemed a little shaken and unsure. Some other senior executives were standing to the side, but they didn't participate. Waz was there and didn't look too happy about things. There was a Q&A session at the end of the meeting where a couple of employees told Scotty how horribly he handled the situation, but in general, everyone seemed listless, as if we didn't know how we should react. Within a few days, everyone was referring to the incident as Black Wednesday. Later in the day, I spoke to Dick Houston about what had happened. Dick was an early Apple programmer who had written the boot ROM for the disk controller card. An astute observer of Apple politics, he was also friendly with Scotty. He said he knew the purge was going to happen and had even met up with Scotty a few times over the last week to help him draw up the list of dead weight. Scotty had asked for the approval of Mike Markula and the board of directors and hadn't received it yet, but decided to go ahead and do it anyway. 
I agreed that Apple had made some poor hires over the last year, especially some of the managers, but a Stalin-like purge was not a valid way to run a company. I complained about Rick's firing and how the situation made me feel alienated from the company. I was the type of programmer who needed to believe in what I was doing, and I was now uncertain about Apple's values. When I arrived the next morning, there was a message on my desk from Mike Scott's secretary saying that he wanted to talk to me. I called her back and arranged a meeting with Mike. Obviously, Dick must have talked with him. Scotty looked harried, and our conversation was interrupted by several phone calls. Scotty said he heard that I was upset and was thinking about leaving and wished to express that he wanted me to stay. He asked what he could do to get me excited about Apple again. I responded that I might like to work with Burl Smith and Bud Dribble on the Macintosh. Later that afternoon, Scotty's secretary arranged for me to talk with Steve Jobs. By this time, Steve had been involved with the Mac project for more than a month. Although I didn't know it at the time, the day before he had dismissed Jeff Raskin, the founder of the project. Jeff was now on a mandatory leave of absence after having complained about Steve's leadership. Lots of people at Apple were afraid of Steve Jobs because of his spontaneous temper tantrums and his proclivity to tell everyone exactly what he thought, which often wasn't very favorable. But in the few interactions that I'd had with him, he was always nice to me, although sometimes a bit dismissive. I was excited to be talking with him about working on the Mac. The first thing he said to me when I walked into his office was, Are you any good? We only want really good people working on the Mac, and I'm not sure you're good enough. I replied that yes, I thought I was pretty good, that I was friends with Burl, and that I had already helped him out with the software a few times. I hear that you're creative, Steve continued. Are you really creative? I said I wasn't the best judge of that, but that I'd love to work on the Mac and thought I'd do a great job. He said he'd get back to me soon. A couple of hours later, around 4.30 p.m., I was back to work on DOS 4.0 for the Apple II. I was in the middle of some low-level code, interrupt handlers and dispatchers, when all of a sudden I noticed Steve Jobs peering over the wall of my cubicle. I've got good news for you he told me. You're working on the Mac team now. Come with me and I'll take you over to your new desk. Hey, that's great, I responded. I just need a day or two to finish up what I'm doing here, and I can start on the Mac on Monday. What are you working on? What's more important than working on the Macintosh? Well, I've just started a new OS for the Apple II, DOS 4.0, and I want to get things in good enough shape so someone else can take it over. No! You're just wasting your time with that. Who cares about the Apple II? The Apple II will be dead in a few years. Your OS will be obsolete before it's even finished. The Macintosh is the future of Apple, and you're going to start on it now. With that, he walked over to my desk, found the power cord attached to my Apple II, and gave it a sharp tug, pulling it out of the socket and causing my machine to lose power and the code I was working on. He unplugged my monitor and put it on top of the computer, then picked them both up and started walking away. Come with me. I'm going to take you to your new desk. 
we walked outside to Steve's silver Mercedes, and he dropped my computer into the trunk. We drove a few blocks to the corner of Stevens Creek and Saratoga Sunnyvale to a nondescript, brown-shingled, two-story office building next to a Texaco station, while Steve waxed eloquent about how great the Macintosh was going to be. We walked up to the second floor and through an unlocked door. Steve plopped my system down on a desk in an office near the back of the building and said, Here's your new desk. Welcome to the Mac team, before darting off. I started looking around the office and saw Burl Smith and Brian Howard in the next room, huddled over a logic analyzer connected to a prototype board. I told them what happened, and they said Steve had been over earlier, asking them if they thought I was any good. They were happy that I had officially joined the team. After helping them with the disk diagnostic routines they were trying to debug, I returned to my new desk and looked inside the drawers. I was surprised to see that it was still full of someone else's stuff. In fact, the bottom drawer had all kinds of unusual items, including various kinds of model airplanes and some photography equipment. I later found out that Steve had assigned me to Jeff Raskin's old desk, which he hadn't even emptied yet. How did you guys leave Apple? Is, does everyone leave Apple on unhappy terms? Jeff, you, the father of the Macintosh, you were gone from Apple at least two years before the Mac even came out. How does that that's, that's That's true. Um, Steve Jobs came one day uh, after he'd been thrown off the Lisa project because he was too meddlesome for them to tolerate him <laughs> any longer. He looked around for something to do, and the Macintosh, which he'd been telling me, stupidest idea I ever heard of, and he killed the project three times. And some great employees who are, who are not here, like, uh, for example, Brian Howard, who's still with Apple, we, we not only did our regular job, but we kept the Macintosh project going secretly. So we were working days on what we were supposed to be doing, and we were working nights on the Macintosh. This is before Bill, Andy, uh, were, were, were on the, the project. Um, well, eventually he said, I'm going to take over the hardware. You can run software and documentation. He said this to you? To, to me, yeah. Okay. And, well, what do you say to the chairman of the board? Yes, sir. So things went on that way for a little while. And then one day he says, I'm going to take over uh, software and you can run documentation. <laughs> and I said, no, you can have documentation. And I resigned because it was uh, pretty unacceptable as, as a manager from my point of view. But what happened was, was rather nice is that then he and Markle called me into their offices, and they said, please don't leave. And they made me an offer I could refuse. So I said, okay, I've done this twice before. I know what's going to happen. No. And, uh, and, I, and I went on. Apple had a big shakeup in the... I was working on the Apple II, slated to write a new operating system for the Apple II, was working on it. But Apple had a shakeup that has been known in Apple's history as Black Wednesday, where they fired about... 40% of the engineers working on the Apple II all in one day. And I was thinking about quitting because it was kind of a nasty thing to have a purge like that. But I was already friends with Earl Smith, the hardware designer who was working with Jeff. And uh, Mike Scott, uh, when he heard I was going to quit, he asked me, well, what would it take to get you to stay? And I said, oh, I'd love to work on the Mac with uh, Burl. And I guess Steve had just taken over the project from Jeff at the time. Good part of the story is Steve came bopping by my cubicle and told me, you're working on the Mac team now. And I said, I, I need to finish up this 
work on the Apple II. It'll take me about two days to finish it up. And he goes, no, that stinks. You know, uh, the Apple II, it's going to be obsolete before you're even finished it. So I said, well, just give me a few hours. And he goes, no. Uh, and he pulls the plug out of my Apple II, <laughs> losing all the work I'm doing, picks up the Apple II and starts walking away with it. <laughs> what can I do but, uh, but follow him? Uh, he went outside, stuck it in the, in the trunk of his silver Mercedes. I got in with him. Uh, we drove a few blocks over to this building called Texaco Towers, where the Mac building was, takes it out of the car, plops it on a desk in a second-story building, and says, this is your desk now, and then leaves. Uh, hardly anyone else was in the building. Uh, Bud Tribble, who was my manager, was up in Seattle on something. I didn't know quite what to do, but I, so what I did was I opened the drawers of the desk, uh, to see what's there, and there were these model airplanes and a Polaroid camera. Turns out it was Jeff's desk up until like the day before. <laughs> oh Thanks for tuning in. You can contact me and find more stories at www.macfolkloreradio.com. I appreciate your reviews on iTunes. Uh-huh.